Well, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. <clears throat> this has been uh, a much-anticipated Sunday for, uh, for many. Uh, we are done with the book of Matthew. Uh, we are starting a new study. Uh, we are studying the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and so this will, be a, uh, this will be a swift journey through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it only took us three, almost four years to go through the book of Matthew, so we ought to get through Samuel in no less than five years. Uh, so so we'll, 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 we'll be real quick, real quick. Uh, no, we, we will be walking through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel uh, is uh, where we find the story of David and Goliath. It's where we find uh, the story of Saul and David. It's where we find uh, the story of Samuel that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, many, many beautiful narratives uh, in the book of Samuel. Well, as we begin, we're going to read uh, verses 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 in Samuel chapter 1. Verses 1 through 16 in Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man from, from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, the Ephraimite. And he had two wives, the name of which was one was Hannah, and the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. And this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at the host, to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give, a, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting there by the doorpost of the temple. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow. And said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look upon the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were not moving. But her voice was not heard. So Eli thought that she was drunk, and Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and my provocation. Let's pray. God, as we see... The affliction of Hannah. 
Lord, may we be able to identify. Or there are those here this morning who are greatly oppressed in spirit. Their hearts this morning are broken. And they come here this morning crying out to God because you are the only one that can meet them in their need. God, this morning, may your Holy Spirit bring comfort to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we begin a new book, it's important that we understand that the Bible can never mean what it never meant. One of the greatest tragedies that that I believe we do as students of the Bible is we ask the question, What does this passage mean to you? And that's a wonderful, introspective question, but it's the wrong question. Because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but I really don't care what the Bible means to you. I want to know what the Bible means. I want to know what what God intended to communicate to to the original audience through the original author. Because... You, while I love you and I care for you and and your opinions are meaningful, you are not God. And God desires to speak to us through His Word. And so in order for us to understand what God is trying to say to us through His Word, we must not ask the question, what does the Bible mean to you? We must ask the question, what does the Bible mean? And the Bible has only one meaning. The Bible can, any, any particular passage, any particular book, has only one meaning. An author wrote it, to, to communicate to an audience one specific theme, one specific uh, message that he wants to communicate. Now, we can take that message and we can, we can interpret it and we can apply it in a multiplicity of different ways. Whenever, whenever we read, and, and, and we're going to look at this in just a few moments, when we look at, at Samuel and we look at, at how God spoke to Hannah and said, I will indeed give you a son, and he promised her a son, and she gave that son back to him, and he became a Nazarite, and no, no, no razor touched his head, and no strong drink touched his mouth. We can extract from that biblical principles that we can apply to our life, that, that when we commit ourselves unto God, that God pours out blessings upon our life. And so the principles are, are applicable to our lives, but we must understand what the Bible meant, what the original author wrote to the original audience. And so in order to do that, we've got to do a little bit of background and a little bit of history. Uh, as, 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 we were, as I was preparing this message, my, I just want to go ahead and warn you, my wife told me that the, the background portion was too long and that the history portion was too long. So I want to go ahead and apologize for that to begin with, uh, that, that, that we are going to talk a little bit about history. And so for those of you... Uh, for those graduates who thought I thought I was done with history and was never going to have to take history again, you, you're, you're going to have to endure it for just a little bit longer. For the rest of those who, who absolutely loathe history, just, just grin and bear. Just pretend, humor me. Pretend like you like this. So I, I want to start off and I want to point out that the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were originally one book. That it wasn't until, it wasn't until the Masoretes take the, uh, and it wasn't until uh, the, the Septuagint and the Greek translation of the Old Testament to the New Testament that the book of 1 Samuel was split into two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And so this is really a narrative, this is really a narrative of the, of the kingdom 
of the United Kingdom up until the divided kingdom, up until the exile. This is, this is where we get uh, the, the stories of David and Solomon and David and Goliath and, and Solomon and his many wives. And this is where these narratives come from, the book of 1 Samuel and the book of 2 Samuel. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were originally one book, and traditionally Samuel is the author. There's only one problem. Samuel dies in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25. And so Samuel probably didn't write 2 Samuel since he was dead. And so we believe, scholars believe, that, that while the, traditionally the authorship was, was attributed to Samuel, that there were probably three, three contributors to the, book, to the content of the book of Samuel. And so you've got Samuel, obviously, and then you've got Nathan, who's also a prophet of God, and you've got Gad. And so these three men, these three men probably kept personal journals, they probably kept personal notations, and a later author, an anonymous author later probably compiled, probably a rabbi, probably a priest, compiled this information and wrote it down, and it was later canonized. And so the author is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. We do know the date of writing. We do know that it was written somewhere before the exile. It was written somewhere before the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom and the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom. Somewhere between 920 B.C. and 720 B.C. And we remember B.C., we count backwards up until the birth of Christ. And so we know that it was written before the exile. We also know that all of the events took place before the divided kingdom. This took place before 970 B.C. So the events took place somewhere between 1100 B.C. and 970 B.C. And it was written down somewhere between 930 B.C. and 720 B.C. And everybody says, I'm so glad you cleared all that up. So when we're, when we're talking about the book of Samuel, I want us to understand that we're talking about the narrative of the nation of Israel. Now, let's look very, very briefly, and, and I'm going to walk through about about a thousand years of, of, of Israelite history, about 700 years of, of the nation of Israel's history in about five minutes. So, so, so I need you guys to stay with me, okay? So, Miss, uh, Mr. Chris, if you can pull up that first slide. We're going to do a brief history of Israel from Abraham to Samuel, okay? So here we go. You ready? God calls Abram, God calls Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he calls him to follow him. And Abram takes his family, and they load up, and they go. And God says, I will lead you to a place that I will tell you. And so Abraham leaves. Abraham marries his sister, Sarah. Sarah and Abraham want to have children. They can't have a child. And so Sarah, I'm sorry, Abraham and his, and his maidservant, the, the, the uh, maidservant of Sarah, get together, and they conceive a child and Ishmael is born and God said no that's not what I had in, that's not what I had in mind and so we then see the promised son of Abraham Isaac is born and Isaac literally means laughter whenever Sarah uh, came and told Abraham I'm going to have a son Abraham busted out laughing and that's why that's why Abraham's son is named Isaac and so Isaac is born Isaac is the son of of Abraham and Sarah Isaac then marries Rebekah Rebecca does not have any children for like 20 years, and she goes to the Lord, and she's like, Lord, 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 what's going to happen? I, I, I desperately want a son, and she is conceived, uh, she conceives, and she is given birth to twins, Jacob and Esau, and we know that, 
that the scripture tells us in the book of Romans, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, the, first, uh, the, the firstborn will serve the secondborn. We are told that Jacob is the son of promise. Jacob means deceiver. So Jacob, being the, the godly man that he is, steals his brother's birthright, deceives him, and takes the birthright from Esau. Although Jacob is the promised son, Jacob is not at this point a, a godly man. He is a deceiver. He is, he is doing what he wants to do. And, and Jacob ends up going working for his uncle Laban. And as he's working for his uncle Laban, he marries first he marries Leah because he is tricked by his uncle. Then he ultimately marries Rachel and he leaves uh, his, his uncle's place uh, there in the Transjordan region. And Jacob and Leah and Rachel come back to Israel. They come back to the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And so as we go into uh, this time, Jacob wrestles with God. And as Jacob wrestles with God, God touches Jacob's hip and he limps for the rest of his life. And it's at that moment that God confirms his covenant with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Isaac. He confirms it with Jacob and he changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob then has many sons. Jacob, Israel has many sons and this is where the 12 tribes of Israel are going to come from. And so one of the sons, the youngest at the point, is sold into slavery. He's sold into slavery to Potiphar. And then Potiphar then sells him, uh, uh, I'm sorry, he is thrown in prison. And while he's in prison, uh, he interprets dreams and he gets out of prison. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And while he interprets Pharaoh, the, the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he is told, he tells the king that there's a famine that's coming upon the land. And because of Joseph, because of Joseph being sold and sold into slavery, thrown into prison, interpreting dreams, God protects not only Israel, but he takes all of the people in that region from famine. And then we see after, after that, we see the death of Joseph. And so Joseph dies, but all of the people of Israel are in Egypt because of Joseph and his power and his, his authority and him being able to protect them from the famine. All the people, in, 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 all the people of Israel are in Egypt. When Joseph dies, the, the scripture says that there, was a, there arose a king who did not know Joseph and he made the people of Israel slaves. After Joseph, we see God raise up Moses to deliver, to deliver Israel out of the hand of Egypt. This is the story of the Exodus. This is where we see the ten plagues. This is where we see the last plague, the death angel, and the Passover. After the Passover, we see the Exodus. We see Israel traveling out of, out of the land of Egypt. We see the, the Red Sea splitting. We see God telling Moses and all the people of Israel, I'm going to give you this land. And so he sends out spies into the land. They come back and they say they have, they're, they're, they're giants over there. They got grapes as big as my head. There's no way we can beat those people. And then God said, because of your lack of obedience and your lack of faith, you will spend one day in the wilderness. I'm sorry, one year in the wilderness for every day that you were in the, the land. And so that's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They come out of the wilderness and Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And we see in uh, Joshua that God said, every place where, the foot of, where your foot is trod, I've already given you. And so Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. They go into the promised land. They take over. They, they drive out uh, the, the inhabitants of the land. And they divide the nation of Israel amongst the 12 tribes. After that, we have this period of judges. This is the period where, where Israel continued to battle idolatry. Uh, within, within the nation, within the people of Israel, they battled idolatry. We see the battles between Midianites and the Gibeonites and all of the ites 
uh, that, that the period of Judges uh, uh, chronicles. And then we see at the end of the period of Judges, we see the book of Samuel. And Samuel is born to Hannah. And everybody now understands all of the history of Israel up to Samuel, right? Whew. All right. So we got it, right? We all understand the context of where the book of Samuel fits. So, let's look at the text. That was pretty good. We, we, made, we, we made good time. We made good time. All right. So, it's important for us to understand the, the spiritual and emotional position of Israel at this place. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. This is the last verse of the book of Judges. If you look in your Bibles, you see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. And Ruth is stuck there in the middle of the book of, Joshua, uh, the book of Judges and Samuel. And Ruth is kind of an aside. Ruth is a, during this period, this is a, this is a, a story, this is a snapshot of what God was doing during this period of the narrative. But the narrative flows from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Samuel is the, is the way that the narrative flows. And so the book of Samuel picks up immediately after the book of Judges. And so if we look at the last verse in the book of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where Israel was when we pick up the story of Samuel. Israel was in a very low place. Idolatry was rampant in the nation of Israel. Not only was idolatry rampant, there was sexual immorality even amongst the priests and the Levites. There was corruption amongst the religious elite in, in, in Israel. The, the priests and the the, the Levites and those who were charged to protect Israel, those who were charged to be the spiritual leaders, were corrupt. They were, they were immoral people. Israel was at a very low place. They were at a low place spiritually. They were at a low place emotionally. God had promised that He would be their God and that He would be their people. They were suffering under, under, under foreign foreign leadership as, as, as these tribes were, these, these warring tribes were coming in, the Philistines and the Midianites and the Moabites, and they were coming in and they were warring against the people of Israel. It's also important for us to know that during this time in world history, there was no great civilization. Egypt had fallen. Babylon had not yet risen. The Assyrians had not yet risen to power. So there was really a vacuum of power in the world at this point. And there was a bunch of small tribes who were vying for power and for control. And this is where the story of Samuel picks up. It's interesting that God changes the course of Israel's history through a weak, insignificant woman. If you look at all of the players in the Bible, look at all of the major characters, Samuel is born to one of the most weak, unassuming people in all of Scripture. And yet it is through this weak, unassuming woman that God changes the whole course 
of Israel history. Because true power, church, and I want us to hear this, true power comes not from our position, but from our posture before God. True power does not come from from accolades, it does not come from influence, it does not come from money, it does not come from our position, but it comes from our posture before an almighty, holy, sovereign God. Enter Hannah. Hannah is, is a microcosm. She is an encapsulation of the people of Israel. She comes to God and she is broken. She has been ridiculed day in and day out by this other woman. Now, I want you to, to put yourself in the, in the mind, in the place of Hannah. Hannah is living with this other woman who is Elkanah's other wife. And she has many children, and she has many sons and many daughters, and she is fertile, and she is able to, in those days, that defined the worth of a woman. And so, here's here's the breakfast conversation in the house of Hannah. You wake up in the morning, you, you set the table, the little one comes scampers in, and she asks her mommy, she says, Mommy, why does Miss Hannah not have any children? The wife simply says, the mom simply says, well, because God doesn't love Miss Hannah. Why doesn't God love Miss Hannah? I don't know, perhaps she has committed some grave sin. Or perhaps, perhaps she is a wicked woman, an evil woman. Well, why is she like that? And then the wife, the other wife of Elkanah begins to to continually goad Hannah, year after year, day after day. And even though she knows in her heart that God loves her, she knows in the deep recesses of her heart that she is a child of the King and that she is an heir to the throne, when you continually hear the murmurings of the enemy, when you continually are peppered with lies, And you're continually told that you're worthless. You begin to internalize that. That's where Hannah was. She was despondent. She was broken. She is the epitome, a microcosm of the nation of Israel. And in her desperation, I want us to see Hannah's response. She cries out to God. Verse 11, it says, She made a vow to the Lord. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son. I want us to see the way that Hannah prays. She says, God, Look upon my afflictions. Look upon the, the, the circumstances, the situation in my life. If you will indeed look upon me and don't forget me, I believe that Hannah was praying the very words of Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, we are told that God saw the afflictions 
affliction of his people. God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And Hannah was praying. She said, God, I need you to not only see the affliction of your people, but I need you to see the affliction of your one servant, of your one child. And I believe that Hannah was praying, and she was crying out to God, saying, God, I need you not just to see the affliction of all of the people of Israel. I need you to see my affliction." I need you to know my hurt, my pain. I need you to know the despondency and the despair that I'm suffering with. Psalm chapter 6, verse 8 tells us this. The psalmist writes, He said, Depart from me all who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Church, I want to comfort you in this. God hears your cry. God hears the voice of your affliction. You say, preacher, I have been struggling with the same struggle year in and year out, day in and day out, and there is no relief in sight. God hears your cry. I say this not because I have any authority other than that of the Word of God, that He hears the affliction of His people. He heard the affliction of Israel. He heard the affliction of Hannah. He heard the cries of Sarah. He heard the cries of Rebekah. He heard the cries of Rachel. God hears the affliction of His people. He hears our cry. And so church, I want to comfort you with this. Don't stop crying out to your God. You say, but he hasn't answered me for 20 years. Don't stop crying out to God. David said that I drown my bed with tears. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the man who slew Goliath with a stone and a sling. This is a man who will rule the nation of Israel. This is also a man who will commit adultery. We'll break every ten of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. Don't stop crying out to God. He hears the cry of His people. God's tendency, church, is to make our total inability His starting point. I want to point out something to you. It is God's M.O., it is God's mode of operation, it is God's consistent action to use barrenness and inability to be His starting point. We looked at the brief history of Israel. God started with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. It's interesting, Abraham and Sarah could have no children. Sarah was barren, yet God promised Abraham and Sarah, I will give you a son. And after years and years and years of of not fulfilling his promise, they took it upon themselves and they said, we'll do it ourselves. If you won't won't fulfill your promise, we'll take it upon ourselves and we will will fulfill the promise. We'll do it as, as is customary in our culture. And they took it upon themselves. And they had Ishmael, and God said, this is not the way that I wanted to 
fulfill my promise. And then God was silent for 13 years, and they knew nothing. They thought God had abandoned them. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their conclusion that God had finally turned his back on them, Sarah becomes pregnant. It is God's M.O. to work through our inability. Sarah has a child, Isaac. Isaac marries a woman, Rebecca, and for 20 years, Isaac and Rebecca couldn't have a kid. She was barren. Yet, through Rebecca is born Jacob and Esau. Jacob marries two women. He marries Leah and he marries Rachel. Leah has many children. Rachel can't. She's barren. God has closed up her womb. Yet it is through Rachel, yet it is through Rachel that God saves Israel. Because through the womb of Rachel comes Joseph, who would be the Savior for not only Israel, but for all of the land. Fast forward to the wife of Samson, who was buried, I'm sorry, who was barren. Manoah's wife could not have kids. And yet through the wife of Manoah, Samson is born. And Samson, again, is a savior for Israel. Fast forward to John the Baptist, who was born from Elizabeth, the forerunner, the prophet to precede the Messiah, was born where? Of a barren woman, Elizabeth. Christ was born, not necessarily of a barren woman, but of a virgin, of impossibility, of inability. And where does God start? Our inability. That is God's MO. That's how He operates. When God's people are without strength, when God's people are without resources, when God's people are without human gimmicks, when God's people are without hope, that's whenever God stretches out His hand. Whenever there is nowhere to turn, whenever we look at God and we say, I have nothing, I have no, 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 no plans, I have no solution, I have no hope, it's, it's, it's over. That's whenever God stretches out his omnipotent right hand and says, watch this. Watch what I can do. You could never do what I can do. It's interesting that we have a God who works in the midst of our inability. I want to point to you Hannah's response to the mockery and the rebuke that she receives. She could have gotten angry. She could have gotten bitter. She could have become mean. But what does she do? She runs to her knees. When we experience despair, mockery, rebuke, I pray that our response is to run to our knees. You know, God's greatest glory is demonstrated when He begins with nothing. I want to tell you a story about my son, my youngest son. You know, the last few weeks we've been talking about parenting. We've been talking about what it means to be a godly father, what it means to be a godly mother. And, and we talked about discipline. We talked about being consistent, being fair, leading by example. Uh, I have a, a, my youngest son, Nicholas, he is morally opposed to eating. 
He just he has he has this this opposition to eating. And there are days whenever my wife and I draw a line in the sand and we say, you are not getting up from this table until you eat everything on your plate. And there are days whenever he has spent three hours sitting at the dining room table and he's not eating. And we say, okay, it's time for bed. Go take your bath, go to bed. And we put him to bed. And occasionally... Through the tears, he'll come crawl up in Dad's lap. And he'll look at me and he'll say, Dad, my tummy hurts. I'm really hungry. Can I have a bowl of cereal? Most of the time, most of the time, I am, no, you should have eaten your pork chop. We're not having cereal. Go to bed. But there are those moments. Whenever his little eyes look up at me with tears welling up in their eyes. And he says, Dad, I'm hungry. And I look at him and I say, do you want Daddy to fix you a bowl of cereal? And he says, can I please? And I fix him a bowl of cereal. And he eats. And he forgets everything that has happened. And he goes to bed. And he's as happy as he could ever be. even though his hunger was a result of his disobedience. When he crawls up into my lap, as his dad, I want to fix it. I want to show him compassion and grace and mercy. Why? Just because I love him. As ornery and as obstinate and as hard-headed and as much like his daddy as he is. I love him. And church, I want you to know that the God that is in heaven, the God that is our God, the God that is the God of the Bible, is that heavenly Father. And even if our circumstances are a result of our sin, and even if our circumstances are a result of things that we've done to ourselves. God wants us to run to Him, to crawl up into His lap, and to look at Him in His face, and to say, Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I'm hurting. Dad, I'm broken. I need you to fix it. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that Hannah cried to. She ran to God. She crawled up into His lap, and she said, I know that there is no hope. I know that there is nothing that I can do that, that, that there is humanly nothing that I can do. I have no, no, no effort that I can give, no amount of extra faith that I can give, no amount of money that I can give. I know that I have nothing to bring to this situation. But I need you to help me. I need you to fix it. And we see the omnipotent hand of God stretch out and answer the prayer of His people. God's greatest glory is demonstrated when He begins with nothing. I want to point your attention to the book of John chapter 6 as we close. Jesus tells His children, He tells His disciples, 
in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent them draws. And I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 45, it says, and everyone who's come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. All those who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. No one can come lest the Father draws them, but when the Father draws them, if they come, I will in no wise cast them out. In Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus saying this. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, I know that there are those out there this morning who are exactly where Hannah is at, who have been broken. They, they have nowhere else to turn. They, have no, they don't know what the next step is. They don't know what, where, where, where tomorrow is going to lead. They have no human gimmicks left. They have no hope. Jesus said, come to me. All those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. And I will give you rest. God is in the business of making that which is broken beautiful. The only caveat is he has to have all the pieces. God can take that which is broken, that which is destroyed beyond all comprehension, and He can make it beautiful, but He has to have all of the pieces. He has to have all of you. That means you have to come to Him with everything, including your sin, and give it to Him. And say, God, I need you to fix it. The good news is is that He's done so through the person of Jesus. God demonstrated His great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says in 2 Corinthians that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And if you bring to God all of your sin, it tells us in, in 1 John, it says if we confess our sin that He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That if we confess our sin, God can take our sin and He can wash us with His blood and make us right. This morning, God wants you to come. He wants you to bring your brokenness. He wants you to bring your ridicule, your rebuke. And He wants you to lay it before the foot of the cross. Let's pray. God, there are moments in our lives when you call us come to lay aside our brokenness to lay aside our efforts and merely crawl up in your lap and ask you to fix it and there are those here this morning who need just that they need to crawl into the lap of the heavenly father with tear filled eyes just ask God to fix it if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come to this altar. Maybe grab someone beside you and say, come pray with me. I need to pray the prayer of Hannah. God, may you see the affliction of your maidservant. God, may you see the affliction of your child. There are some of you who've been trying to fix your life on your own but trying to do the right thing. If 
Yet God never calls us to do the right thing. He calls us to surrender our life to Him. He calls us to give Him our lives and allow Him to live His life through us. If this morning you need to surrender your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to come. During this time of invitation, may you do business with the Holy Spirit. 